I'm delighted to be here. And uh, I'd have, like to thank uh, Don and Father Greenwell. These are some of the best people. It's been my privilege to know. And uh, the chance to speak to yourselves, you are part of what I call the remnant, uh, the one to 10% men and women and children in this country that are still uh, concerned and informed about where our country is headed and what's wrong with it. Uh, why was I invited here? You may be asking yourselves. Um, I'm here to share lessons of my many adventures around the world, um, to the four corners of the world actually, from North Korea to South Africa, from Laos to Lebanon, from Turkey to Thailand. I've been in over 30 countries in the last 24 months. Um, I was driven into the wilderness uh, for many reasons, uh, but like the Afrikaners I live with in South Africa, I've returned from the wilderness stronger than before, better than before. Of course, these adventures overseas uh, did not come without great personal cost uh, to my career, my health, my personal relationships, uh, and at times to even life itself. Um, I've had to delay having a wife and children and even a home, but I believe that these sacrifices were well worth it. Um, I now realize that the spirit of, of what I call the spirit of Antichrist has descended upon the world and it has begun to colonize. Uh, for those who would seek to silence me, and there, there are many, I would say this, that those who seek to bury the truth only poison themselves. Well, I want to ask you a question. What is the most important thing in life? Okay. There was a film I saw while I was living in Thailand. It's called Three Kings, starring George Clooney. Uh, the plot of the film is about three special forces soldiers during Desert Storm who steal $100 million worth of gold bullion from Saddam Hussein. He has stolen the gold from the Kuwaitis. George Clooney, who's a Delta Force Special Forces commander, says to his partners in crime, what is the most important thing in life? Uh, some say God's will, some say money. He says the most important thing in life is necessity. And they say, why? And he says, people will do what is most important to them in any given situation 99.9% .9 of the time. So accepting that definition uh, from the movie, I'd like to point to um, what is most necessary for us to do in this time as remnant Americans. Uh, I would point to uh, a biblical story, Saul and the Amalekites. If you're familiar with this story, you know that God told Saul to slay the Amalekites. He said, do not take any war booty, do not take any cattle, do not take any concubines, do not take any slaves. Saul went and conquered the Amalekites, but he took slaves, he took concubines, and he took gold. He took cattle, and he tried to make an offering of them to God. God rejected this offering and reminded Saul that he had condemned this war booty from the Amalekites. And if you follow the story to the conclusion, Saul was killed and slain by one of the Amalekites he has spared. The spiritual lesson is very pertinent for us today. We have allowed ourselves as Christians, Catholics, and as Americans to slowly accept many of the things in society which God clearly condemns, and at great cost to ourselves, our family, and our national security. The title of my talk, The Shift in, in Consciousness, The American Paradigm, I would describe in this way. A paradigm is simply a way human beings interpret reality. 
And clearly since 1965 and even before then, Americans have changed fundamentally in the way that we view reality. A gigantic chasm has emerged from our traditional Western Judeo-Christian civilization and the modern paradigm. Um, this new modern paradigm I call a Zeitgeist, a German word. It means spirit of the age. What is the new spirit of our age? It's defined by mass media, high technology, credit cards, uh, the belief that the world is one big shopping mall, that the Cold War is over, that America has no enemies. Uh, abortion plays a large role, I'll get to that later. The emergence of the corporate state, uh, planned instability in the family and many of our traditional institutions, uh, bread and circuses of entertainment that we would associate with uh, Roman times, the belief that life is an accident, that we evolve from apes, we came from nowhere and we're going nowhere, and of course then we wonder why kids might bring guns to school and shoot each other. Uh, there is, of course, the hatred of European and uh, Western civilization taught to our own children in our schools. Um, when I went to India and observed the work of Mother Teresa and her devoted followers, it was impressed upon me of the difference in the worldview of Western civilization and of Christendom and of that of the pagan third world. Uh, when you go to Calcutta, you see what would be normally healthy people laying in the gutter, worshiping cows as God and drinking their own toilet water. If you go to Wyoming, you see tan, robust cowboys rounding up cattle and exporting millions of metric tons of wheat to the four corners of the earth, to Bangladesh and to India. But of course, we're told by the cultural elite that all religions and all cultures are equally valid. But we know that's not the case. Another problem in the changing paradigm is uh, the war going on between what I call hero man, economic man, and enlightened man. Hero man was for centuries and millennia uh, the true paradigm of Western civilization. Uh, men like William Wallace, Harriet Tubman, Columbus, Magellan, these were men and women who were true heroes of the faith who realized that the man on his knees before God sees far more than the atheist on his tippy toes. Today we have economic man. The Federal Reserve Bank has in many ways in Alan Greenspan replaced God and Jesus Christ as the center of our civilization. The only real means or measure of a man these days it seems is his economic capacity. Of course we didn't go from hero man straight to economic man uh, there was what I call enlightened man. Uh, he was a product of the Enlightenment French Revolution. The en enlightened man believes that he is inherently good and therefore he has no need of a savior and no need of Jesus Christ. Uh, popular movies these days, Legends of the Fall, uh, Empire of the Sun, The English Patient to name just three, feature these enlightened men who reject Christianity and often triumph over very pathetic Christian figures. Now, how did we get to this point in our society? Um, this is a very, very diverse topic and one which most journalists or speakers wouldn't want to tackle, but I'll do my best for you tonight. What is wrong with our country? Many could trace the beginnings of the changing paradigm as how, author Hal Lindsey does to the thought bombs, what Lindsey calls thought bombs of the 19th century. Marx, Hegel, 
Darwin, Freud, and Kierkegaard. They replace in many ways the Old Testament and the Christian gospel. You may not be aware that Sigmund Freud had original cloister of 12 satellite psychiatrists. Of those 12 men, eight of them committed suicide. Soren Kierkegaard uh, was a Swede who brought existentialist thought into mainstream Christianity. And this has manifested itself in the New Age movement. Between 1865 and 1914, or roughly uh, the Crimean War and World War I, the West thought that it had abolished warfare, except for around the turn of the century, the Russo-Japanese War, the Boer War, there's some minor conflicts, the Spanish-American War. But between 1865 and 1914, this progressive ideal of enlightened man, an economic man replacing the old Judeo-Christian civilization took root. When the Titanic sank in 1912, uh, those delusions were greatly shaken. Um, you may not be aware, but more than 90% of the survivors of the Titanic were women and children. The old chivalry was still in place. And more recent maritime disasters in the Baltics and the Philippines, more than 90% of the survivors were men who told the women, honey, you wanted uh, equal rights and affirmative action for women's rights? Well, now you got it. Go swim with your kids on your own. Uh, after the sinking of the Titanic, which is, was an event that was so catastrophic in its time frame, we simply cannot imagine it, uh, came World War I and the killing of uh, Europe's finest sons. So the ideals of uh, that period between 1865 and World War I were shaken. A problem with World War I was that many of America's rural sons became soldiers and went to France where they were exposed to the ideals of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, uh, the Gay Paris, and they brought these ideals of uh, prostitution and drugs and atheism back with them to the four corners of America. In the 1930s, uh, FDR ascended to power in a way that few American presidents, actually no other American president has. Uh, we saw the beginning during World War II of the CIA and the, the secret state, uh, the forerunner of the CIA, I believe, was the OSS. Uh, FDR armed the Soviet Union. We also dispatched to communist China what was called the Dixie Mission. The Dixie Mission was sent by the State Department to make overtures with Chairman Mao uh, about a, an alliance between America and the communists. Uh, when the Dixie Mission was discovered by the military, it was dismantled and its members sent back to America in shame. Another feature of the 1930s was the loss of the European empires and the rise of Keynesian economics. John Maynard Keynes was a British economist who believed in deficit spending. He, uh, he believed that it was the responsibility of governments to spend their way, deficit spend their way into prosperity. When it was pointed out that this system in the long run was not sustainable, he said, well, in the end, we're all dead anyway. <coughs> After World War II, uh, a pivotal year, in my view, was 1948, which was the, saw the creation of the World Council of Churches, which has led us into the interfaith movement, uh, the rise of apartheid South Africa, and the creation of Israel, the nation of Israel, which many believe fulfilled certain biblical prophecies. Not many of you may know that South Africa, Israel, Chile, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Taiwan formed their own version of NATO throughout the Cold War, and while the State Department in this country and the British Foreign Office were betraying them, they worked uh, very closely for their common security against communism and Shiite Islam. 
The 1950s saw the rise of Elvis Presley and rock and roll, which really provided a segue into the Beatles in the 60s, in which the Beatles brought the religion of the East to the West, adding to the changing paradigm. 1962, uh, prayer and Bible reading was removed from public schools. 1973, the legalization of abortions. These things happened really without much protest from conservative Protestants or the Catholic community. There were no riots in the streets. Between 1974 and 1994, um, the New Age movement and the liberals and the cultural Marxists consolidated power in our country. Christians were systematically removed from all areas of influence in the culture. This is what's known as the Gramsci strategy. Antonio Gramsci was an Italian communist. He uh, was jailed by Mussolini. And while he was in prison, he realized that the peasants in Italy did not re resent the landowners and the cultural elite. They still had their religion and their family, and that was important to them. And he said, we must take control of the plays, the novels, uh, the movies, all areas where culture is made manifest in society to have a true Marxist revolution. Uh, with the rise of the politically correct Taliban, we've seen um, increase in abortion, uh, devotion to the United Nations, globalist agenda, rise of the occult. Now we've gotten to the point where NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association, is represented by the ACLU meeting in public-funded public libraries in San Francisco while the Boy Scouts, the future of our country, are not allowed to meet in public buildings in San Francisco. And so this is the new Zeitgeist. Clearly, we traded in our traditional value system to join the global economy. A watershed moment in this country and the changing paradigm came in 1993 with the ascension of the Clintons to power. This was definitely a watershed moment. Uh, their devotion to weakening our country's national security, their devotion to the globalist agenda and abortion should frighten any normal thinking American. Uh, one of the more frightening aspects of Clinton's national security doctrine was to remove giving our submarine commanders the launch codes. Uh, he also changed our nuclear response doctrine to uh, the current doctrine in which missiles must actually hit our soil before we will respond. So if Washington, D.C. is taken out in a surprise attack, our submarine commanders, who are the most viable leg of our defense triad, we have land-based missiles, uh, missiles on uh, stealth bombers, B-1 bombers, and submarines, they won't get their launch codes. Um, I have no doubt personally that Hillary Clinton must wear a black robe at night and worship Satan, but I can't prove that. And it wouldn't surprise me if they were on a plane off to Argentina somewhere as missiles were flying at our country. I know that may be an extreme thought. Um, but when we consider that our battle group, the USS Kitty Hawk, was this year attacked and sunk in a mock raid by the Russian Air Force, it should cause us to, to think about that. We should wonder why that report appeared in the media so briefly and then vanished. I had thought that our aircraft carriers were invincible, but a Russian Air Force squadron took off from Vladivostok, made a run on the Kitty Hawk, and the Kitty Hawk did not even launch a plane until the Russian fleet, air fleet had passed over, not once but twice. Landed back in their base and sent an email to the commander on the ship, gotcha. Uh, talking again about the Gramsci strategy and the decline of our culture, the decline is nothing short of frightening. Um, it's been my experience that conservative Christians and Catholics have been so alienated by the culture that they've completely turned off TV 
and the movies, and therefore, through no fault of their own, they become ignorant about how bad things really are. I'd like to point out just a few examples. Uh, one would be Madonna's video where she seduces a 12-year-old boy, which appeared on MTV. Uh, the children's show South Park features children eating human waste on their Christmas dinner, four-letter words used about and against Jesus Christ, uh, Saddam Hussein in hell having gay sex with the devil on and on ad nauseum. There's also a film I'd like to point out called The Craft. Uh, very well done, slick movie, Hollywood movie from a production standpoint starring Nev Campbell, one of the top starlets in Hollywood. She actually hosted, uh, I think, the Academy Award several years ago. This film not only teaches teenagers how to worship Satan, but how to slit your wrists the right way up and down. I always thought it was a cross. And they make sure to say, slit your wrist the right way three times and show a close-up of it. Now, who filmed, who funded a movie like this? And why were so many top stars like Nev Campbell put in this movie? And where is the outcry? A uh, popular television show on Fox Network, Boston Public, shows teachers having sex with their students. Uh, suggestive dance routines by cheerleaders that would make a sailor on shore leave blush. But when I watched the Orange Bowl last New Year's Eve, I saw high school students doing these same kind of routines. Again, where is the outcry? Uh, speaking about the changing paradigm, getting back to the Dixie mission, the way we've bent over backwards to arm China is very frightening to me. Alexander Solonitsyn, perhaps the greatest human rights dissident in the world, gave a speech at Harvard University, commencement speech, I think in 1978 or 79, in which he said, quote, a future China armed with American technology will one day impose a Cambodian-style genocide upon the United States. China is increasing its technology and its military capabilities to the four corners of the earth. I would point out to their new submarine base in South Africa, uh, their control of the Panama Canal through Hutch Hutchinson Wampoa Corporation of Hong Kong, the nuclear weapons design stolen from our labs in New Mexico by Wen Ho Lee, transfer of technology by the Loral Corporation of sens Sensitive Satellite Missile Technology to China, from uh, the American military industrial complex given to China in exchange for campaign contributions for Clinton's re-election. China is now in the World Trade Organization and I think it's frightening that we buy most of our Christmas toys from Communist China, a holiday ostensibly made to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of mankind and humanity Yet these toys are made by Catholic priests standing in vats of low-grade acid in China, Christians and political dissidents in slave labor camps and work gulags. It should make, again, any normal person sick. It suggests a mindset bordering on derangement. Uh, President Bush Jr. has now said he's no longer concerned about China's missile buildup. Uh, the author of the Tiananmen Square Massacre in 1989 was brought by Clinton to the White House and given a 21-gun salute at Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, the intelligence capability of our allies in Canada and the United Kingdom is desperately low. Sensitive laptops are stolen on almost a weekly basis and this should frighten us when we think about our open borders policy with Canada. Again, because of the uh, political correctness uh, many of Canada and, and the United Kingdom's best trained intelligence operatives have left the service due to the Marxist worldview of Tony Blair and of Clinton and of the Canadian Prime Minister. And this has left a gaping hole in their intelligence capability. So I tell you, 
Don't believe it when you hear, we've entered a new age and a new world. No, you are just watching the death of the old world. Now, uh, continuing on, I know you didn't come here to hear a quote read from a magazine, but I want to read something, just a quick paragraph or two. Why don't things seem to make sense in the world? I said to Don the other day, the only thing that makes sense in the world is that nothing makes sense. There's a reason for this. Uh, the new cultural Marxism has been called by one prognosticator, quote, a dualistic pseudo-reality where words and concepts are given special ideological significance distinct from their normal real-world meanings. They insist that the real world conforms to its ideological vision. Continuing on, the pundit says, quote, this is a closed circular system of thought, a nullification of thought, an antidote to rational discourse and description of social and political phenomena. Now, what does this mean? It really means that the elite, the transnational elite of the Northern Hemisphere who run the world have their own form of morality. There is no fixed standard according to biblical precepts. What is right or wrong is that which merely serves the interests of the transnational elite. Let me give you examples. When the Serbians leave Bosnia, it's aggression. When the Muslims lead, leave, it's democracy. When Turkey kills the Kurds, it's good. When Iraq kills the Kurds, it's bad. When Tim McVeigh bombs, it's bad. When Nelson and Winnie Mandela set bombs at Church Street at rush hour to maximize casualties or kill unarmed Zulus at Shell House, that's good. And remember, if Tim McVeigh had been an abortion doctor in Oklahoma City, he would have been protected by federal marshals instead of executed. So we see that morality in the new paradigm is no longer a function of ethics, morals, or objective behavior, but merely the place of the actor within the ideological system. When California residents vote to limit immigration, that's not democracy. So it has to be struck down in a federal court. When the Irish vote to limit abortion, we need to vote again and again and again until they get it right and decide that they really want abortion. When the Danes in Denmark decide that they don't want the Maastricht Treaty, they still have to have a referendum and another one and another one and another one until they finally vote for European Monetary Union. Of course, they haven't done that so far. On and on. Those are enough examples of that. I'd like to uh, shift gears now and use our technological wizardry here to talk a little bit about my travels overseas and how they relate to the changing paradigm and worldview. Okay, where to begin? How about we begin in Sudan? Let's go to Africa, Ray. Okay, there's Sudan, the largest country in Africa and historically a Western ally. American and British troops fought in this theater during World War II. Can everyone see that? There's Sudan. Okay. In the north of Sudan, Muslims, mostly Shiite Muslims, rule the country. They are Arab Shiite Muslims. In the south are mainly black and animist Christians. The northern Sudanese Muslims have killed two million black South Sudanese Christians just since 1993. Did America send up an air blockade, a no-fly zone? Did we drop in relief supplies? Did we send in special forces to train the south uh, the SPLA, the South Southern People's Liberation Army, whatever they're called? No. The Congress tried to pass this legislation and did. President Clinton vetoed it. Was there any outcry? No. Guess why? 
something I call the war party. The war party involves natural resources, gold, oil, timber, drugs, and other natural resources. What's in Sudan? Sorghum. What is sorghum used in? Chewing gum and Coca-Cola and other soft drinks. So every time we drink a Coca-Cola, we're killing a South Sudanese. The Arabs are particularly cruel in this country. They enslave Christians and try to convert them forcibly into to Islam. Christians and Catholics are crucified, tortured in what are called ghost houses and other atrocities that I cannot even speak about. Uh, one of their best friends in South Sudan come from South Africa in the former apartheid regime. A few ex-Special Forces soldiers come all the way up to Sudan to bring relief supplies. So please pray for the South Sudanese in your heart. Uh, uh, Colin Powell and President Bush have been pressed to help come to the assistant, assistance of Southern Sudan and its beleaguered black Christian population. Recently, Al Sharpton discovered the Sudan. I wrote an article about this and said, well, where were you the last seven years? But, you know, at least he's there. He could lend a voice. And there's real persecution here. The Pope has said that this is one of the new bastions of Christianity in the future. So let's uh, pray for those folks. Uh, one more point I want to add. Does anyone know what a road rally is? A road rally is a cross-country race in souped-up race cars uh, promoted by uh, auto manufacturers. There's a road rally in Chad two years ago, and radical Muslims attacked the road rally, and France sent in the French Foreign Legion in an airlift to airlift out the road rally, but yet they're doing nothing in southern Sudan. Last year, President Clinton stood on the border of Uganda. It's not marked on this map. Uganda and Sudan and apologized for slavery 400 years ago, but forgot to mention the human slavery going on today in Sudan. So these people really need our prayers and our help. I don't know what's going to take to wake the West up about this. Um, why don't we move on to uh, Southeast Asia, Ray? How are we doing on time? Okay. Ah, okay. Thailand. Ooh, where are we? For most of the last two years, I've lived in Thailand. Um, I was based down here on tiny islands off of Thailand's coast. Thailand is a very important American ally. If you look at a world map between Thailand and Israel, we ain't got no allies, maybe Bangladesh. Thailand has been used as a buffer to, present, to prevent communist regimes which still have control in Cambodia, Vietnam, and Laos from pushing westward. Thailand is a very narrow peninsula. He who would control Thailand, Malaysia, and Singapore could walk right into Indonesia and then on down into Australia. The Japanese did just this during World War II and actually bombed northern Australia, a town called Darwin. Uh, one of the most remarkable things about Thailand is the moral decline which has gripped this nation in the 1990s. They had a great economic boom during the 90s, which ended in uh, the 1997 financial meltdown. The national symbol of Thailand is the elephant, but yet the, not, there is not one national park for the preservation of elephants in Thailand, and the Thai people feed a drug called yaba, or speed, to elephants to make them work faster. 
Talk about your changing paradigm. Could you imagine an American feeding speed to a bald eagle so it would fly around the stadium faster? I don't think so. It's quite ugly. Um, in Bangkok, Sin City, you often notice men, usually Japanese men or white men, riding on a motor scooter with a young homeless Thai boy on the back of their motor scooter. There's a very good reason for this. In Japan and Germany, they sell pedophile tours, official tours, so pedophiles can come to Thailand and have relations with boys who are homeless because why? They have no parents to back them up. Fortunately, now there's a new organization called FACE, which uh, provides lawyers and accommodation and money for these children to fly to Sweden or Japan and testify against the pedophiles. So I'd be in Bangkok on the street and I'd see a man with a little boy in the back of his scooter and I'd say, excuse me, sir, is that your son? Is that your son? And a few times a man will just get off his scooter and run away. So that was my good deed for the day. Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, in 1900 and the turn of the century, you've heard of the story Anna and the King uh, about a British woman who went to serve the king of Thailand and teach his children. That was big, a big deal, that one, because how many, back then, how many British women went to Thailand? Not many. Today, any young British girl on welfare can get a cheap ticket to Bangkok, and they travel down to the island where I live, and they have what's called a full moon party. People come from all over the world just to take drugs, 12 days a year, every full moon. Uh, women are raped at this party. They take a date rape drug called, I think, ecstasy or something like that. Uh, people disappear. But it's a big moneymaker, so the Thai government doesn't stop it. Some of you may have heard of a movie called The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. They filmed that on my island. I was actually an extra in the movie. But it's quite a disgusting place. The reason I was based in Thailand is not only could I fly cheap, cheaply out of Bangkok to India, Burma, North and South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, but it's very inexpensive to live, and the location, as you could see, allowed me to reach many points on Earth while staying within my company's budget. Enough about Thailand. I'd like to point to this tiny nation of Laos, this landlocked nation of Laos. Within Laos are some of the most wonderful Christian people this world has ever seen. They are called the Hmong Hill Tribes, also known in Vietnam as the Montagnards or Mio. They're also called the Montagnards in Cambodia. Who are the Hmong? H-M-O-N-G. The Hmong were America's most staunchest allies during the Vietnam War. They were trained under what's called Operation White Star, begun in 1962 by the Green Berets under the direction of one of my mentors, Major Carl Bernard. The Hmong were trained to intercept supplies coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail into Vietnam, sent from Communist China and from the Soviet Union. The Hmong Special Forces took out at least half of all those supplies, so chances are that some Vietnam vet that you know is alive today because of the dedication of these Hmong Hill Tribes. They were very rugged mountain people. They gave up their land, their homes, their farms, their peaceful way of life to fight for America against the communist antichrist spirit that had infected Laos and Vietnam and Cambodia, sent from Mao, uh, exacerbated by the French pullout after World War II and the fall of uh, Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam, which is somewhere up here, west of Hanoi. Sadly, only 200,000 Hmong were repatriated to Australia, France, and the United States 
after the fall of Saigon, the rest were left to die. Uh, babies had their, were bashed against trees. Women were thrown off of cliffs. Those lucky enough to escape out of Laos went to refugee camps on the border of Laos. You see Chiang Mai here in this region between Laos and Thailand, where they remained until 1999. In 1999, uh, the economic collapse of Asia, the Asian meltdown, which began in November of 97, really began to pinch the, the budget of the government of Thailand. They decided that they could no longer afford to keep the Hmong in, in, in not concentration camps, in refugee camps, and they decided they were going to send them back to Laos. I said, I don't think that's a very good idea. I quickly hopped on a boat from my island, took a train up to Bangkok, and went up to Chiang Mai and Chiang Rai and into the refugee camps where the people literally begged me, don't let them send us back. They'll kill us all. They cried. Don't let them send us back. Our parents and our grandparents helped your soldiers. Uh, the Russians have used biological weapons against us. Please don't let them send us back. Uh, I contacted the Special Forces Command in North Carolina. I was instructed by Colonel Hackworth. Anyone know that? that's a good name to drop? He's the most decorated soldier in the history of, of the Vietnam War and a very fine man. He put me in touch with Major Bernard, who ran Operation White Star. They basically said, Anthony, it's up to you. Um, now, I, I don't feel that a real man should draw attention to his own actions, but since I've been asked to come here and speak, I'll tell you this story. I went into Laos on a tourist visa with my camera. I went to investigate the plight, the plight of the repatriated Hmong, got my photos, wrote my stories, gave them back to the Special Forces Command and Major Bernard. Major Bernard is now 75 years old. Remember, this is 1999. He first went to Laos in when? 1962. He walked and stumbled around the halls of Congress with my stories and photos and said, we must desperately have hearings on these Hmong refugees. He was able to convene hearings led by ben, Congressman Bell, Ben Gilman, which were held in secret. Uh, yada, yada, yada. President Clinton signed a waiver of the English language requirement and gave the Hmong 35,000 visas to come to the United States. Every couple weeks, I get a letter from a young Hmong person. Dear Mr. Lebedo, uh, my name is Sally Lai. I'm five years old. I live in Seattle. Uh, thank you. Thanks to you, I'm alive in Major Bernard. I have a dog named Sam, a kitten named Boo, a new doll, yada, yada, yada. Got another nice letter from a girl named Noem Her. Oh. Uh, not, not long ago, I received another letter from a Hmong girl named No M. Her, which really made me cry, and I want to share this letter. She wrote, Dear Mr. Lebedo, I've been in this country for many years. However, I've always been ashamed of my Hmong parents because they don't dress very well, and they're just stupid farmers, and they don't speak English hardly at all and I'm ashamed of them. But then I read your articles, and suddenly I became so proud of them and how they smuggled me out of Laos and fought against the communists and came to America to build a life where I could live in freedom. And now my parents are the coolest parents at my whole high school, and my friends come over constantly to visit with them. And I thought, well, that's a great thing that a man like Major Bernard and the Special Forces people and those in Congress gave this young girl, Noam Her, the pride back in her parents. So that, um, to me, made what I went through in Laos, fever. I had a motorcycle crash, and I still need knee surgery. I was so sick, I actually wrote out a will when I came back to Bangkok. But um, I began to question, was this job worth it?
traveling alone without any support through the jungle, sometimes on elephant or motorcycle. But when I got that letter from Sally Lai, the little six-year-old girl, and know I'm her, I realized that I had done the right thing. And I felt that the Lord had been with me during that trip. Uh, continuing on in Indochina, Cambodia. Anyone here of the Killing Fields? Pol Pot? Between 1975 and 1979, Pol Pot, who had been trained in France or schooled in France at the Sorbonne, decided to try out a radical experiment. President Nixon began bombing eastern Cambodia, and the Cambodian people all flooded into Phnom Penh and another town up here called Bantenburg. As America pulled out of Vietnam, there was a real vacuum here. No one could intervene. The Pope, the French Foreign Legion, the American forces, NATO, the Australians. It was a no man's land. What did Pol Pot do? He immediately dispersed the population from urban centers out into the rural areas. He dressed everyone in black pajamas. He destroyed the calendar and called it the year zero. Anyone who spoke a foreign language was killed. Were they killed with guns? No. First, they were sent to a high school in Phnom Penh called S21, Security Prison 21, where they were brutally tortured. Then they were sent down the road out of Phnom Penh to the killing fields. There they were killed with mallets or had their heads sawed off. No guns, so talk about your gun control. Two million people systematically killed for wearing eyeglasses or speaking a foreign language. Did the West do anything? Did we lob in any cruise missiles? Of course, we had satellites. We knew exactly what was happening, and no one did anything. I went to Cambodia in April of 1999. And I went to the killing fields. I went to this S21 torture museum. And I learned something that really shocked me. All mention of the killing fields has been eradicated from every public school textbook from kindergarten through college in Cambodia. Few Cambodians even know that the killing fields occurred. And not one person from the Khmer Rouge, the Red Communists, who enacted Pol Pot's genocide, has ever been put on trial or brought to justice. I wrote an article called Holiday in Cambodia which of all my stories, I think there's almost 200 on the internet, they're all free of course, um, I would recommend you reading. People said it was one of my best. So that's a sad tale there. Uh, Pol Pot also carried out Nazi-style experiments on the people at the killing fields. It's quite frightening. The Vietnamese invaded Cambodia in 1979 and drove the Khmer Rouge to the border of Thailand. You would figure that the Khmer Rouge would just leave those they had imprisoned at S21 in the killing fields to die. But no, they took them out of the killing fields and marched them across the entire company, country to the border of Thailand and Cambodia. Vietnam was in the, not only had overrun Cambodia, but was threatening Thailand. Now remember I told you about Thailand, how it's the gateway down to Indonesia and Australia. President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were faced with a dilemma. The Khmer Rouge, which had carried out this genocide, now became the first line of defense for Thailand. Thatcher sent in British SAS soldiers. American military flights with arms were given to the Khmer Rouge, and they became suddenly our best friends. That's the real politic. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. These poor Cambodians had been imprisoned in the end from 1975 through 1994. So the killing fields went on through the 94, really without the killing, the last 
I don't know, 15 years, but they were still placed in these camps. So it makes you really wonder about real politics and how the world works. Why don't we switch over here and make a break for um, the Middle East? Do we want to take a break? How are we doing on time? Okay. What time is it? 8.50. Okay. They say the average uh, attention span is only about 20 minutes. Hopefully you won't be lagging. Okay, last year I was based in Cyprus, this tiny island here in the Mediterranean, which has long been coveted since the days of Alexander the Great as a strategic uh, checkpoint. The British controlled Cyprus uh, through the 50s and the 60s, I believe. They still have three very important military bases in southern Cyprus. Northern Cyprus is Turkish. They invaded in 1974. Southern Cyprus identifies with Greek culture. The British have an important listening station for the Echelon network here. And because of the ionosphere, they're able to monitor what the Russians are doing with their missile tests. And there's also a naval base over here. Here's a town called Limassol. Um, maybe we could show the Middle Eastern map. I need to see Turkey and Cyprus. Please, Ray. There we go. Okay, here's uh, Nicos Nicosia, here's Cyprus. One of the most hidden X-Files of the New World Order is the fact that the Middle East, while not running out of oil, is rapidly running out of water. In fact, Israel will probably be totally out of water within 10 years. Already now they're stealing water from the Palestinians' territory. So it makes you wonder why they get kind of ornery at times. Where does water come into this region? Well, you've probably all since grammar school heard of the Tigris and Euphrates River. This is really cool, this thing. <laughs> okay, so like you have your mountains up here, Noah's Ark, Mount Ararat, which is another adventure I'll describe in a bit. The Tigris and Euphrates flow into Iraq, down through Syria, then to Israel, Amman, etc. Israel, although it's Jewish, is now good pals with Turkey, which is Muslim, but Sunni Muslim, not the radical Shiite Muslim. Uh, they exchange aircraft technology, special forces training, and something else. Israel has decided that since it's running out of water, that it wouldn't mind stealing Iraq's water. So where's England? Tony Blair's boys are financing a series of dams in southern Turkey on the Tigris and Euphrates, which will A, flood the Kurds, because nobody wants the Kurds, and B, they will build a pipeline from southern Turkey to northern Cyprus, which means the Turks will never leave northern Cyprus, and across to Israel. And then the Israels will say to all the Arab states, oh, you want to be friends? You want some water? Play ball with us. And have all the water you want. How about a nice long shower? How about that lawn that's drying up? So that's like really freaky. So there'll be like terrorism on the pipeline or whatever. But that's a very interesting story. And again, you can see this on our website, worldnetdaily.com. Uh, read that story. Mm. What else did I want to talk about? Let's go back to that other Middle Eastern map you had, Ray. Um, yeah. OK. One of my really fun stories, we'll come back to the Noah's Ark later, was uh, retracing the trek of Lawrence Arabia of Arabia during World War I from southern Turkey, which is up here somewhere. And I went all the way to Lebanon, and then all the way through Jordan, and down here to 
Here's Amman, Jerash, Roman ruins. Here's um, Petra, which you saw in Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and down to the Gulf of Aqaba, down here. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia is a very key figure in history. The accepted version of his story is that he united the Arab tribes out of nowhere. He's a very charismatic and romantic figure. The truth is far different. Lawrence of Arabia was prepared for his mission from his days as a college student in Oxford. He studied under Professor Hogarth, who became the head of the British Foreign Office in Cairo during World War I. Hogarth was England's preeminent archaeologist. For his master's thesis at Oxford, uh, Lawrence of Arabia traveled all through Turkey and Lebanon and Syria into this region learning Arabic and mapping crusader castles, preparing for when World War I broke out when he would mobilize the Arab tribes in rebellion against the Turkish Ottoman Empire, which had ruled this region for about 400 years. One of the most important things to remember about Lawrence of Arabia and what I came to learn besides how he had been prepared for his mission at Oxford was that he's the real key for understanding the current Middle Eastern logjam. At the end of World War I at the Paris Peace Conference, Lawrence said, we must give a homeland to all the people in the region now. They said, why? He said, well, the Ottoman Empire has been here for 400 years. Now's our chance to clear off the monopoly board and give the Jews a homeland, the Kurds a homeland, the Palestinians a homeland, his cat a homeland. Everyone could have a homeland. Who messed this up? The French. The French wanted Syria because they liked the Crusader castles and the Crusades and that whole era, just like, you know, whatever. They were so atheistic by then. And Lawrence of Arabia said, well, it makes me sick to think of you giving all my Crusader castles in Syria to atheistic France. He said, these people disgust me. <laughs> But France wanted Syria. And he said, what do you want Syria for? They're going to kick you out in a few years anyway. So there were various chieftains that were supposed to uh, be put in power in Syria and here in Iraq, which was then called Mesopotamia. Jordan was called Transjordan, yada, yada, yada. As it turned out, uh, the Jews came into Israel. The Palestinians didn't get their land, which probably would have been, they could have shared Syria with the Kurds and the Palestinians. Lawrence of Arabia stormed out of the Paris Peace Conference, and he said, you know what? Your great-grandchildren will be back here in 100 years with gas masks on to sort out the mistake that you've done. Already we've seen our soldiers there with gas masks on, haven't we, during Desert Storm? So he was a very pivotal figure uh, when you want to talk about the current logjam and dynamic. Uh, you can't really understand it fully without understanding Lawrence of Arabia. Why don't we go back to Turkey? And I want to talk a little bit about Noah's Ark. Okay. <clears throat> Last year I was uh, based in southern Cyprus. Northern Cyprus is Turkish, southern Cyprus is Greek, which means when you want to go to Turkey, you can't go from Cyprus straight to Turkey. You can't even make a phone call. No hotel reservation. You got to go to Greece, and then you got to go to, I don't know, some Istanbul, Ankara, then you fly out to a little town called Kars. Then you go to Mount Ararat, which is down, I don't know, around here somewhere. Anything's possible out here. And uh, so this had been like one of my dreams, right? Since I was like a little kid, I saw um, the search for Noah's Ark, you know, with the guy with the beard who did Hangar 18 and all those other uh, films of that genre. 
and I went alone with my mountain climbing gear, and I got on a plane, and I went to this little town called Ars, Kars, K-A-R-S, on the border of Iraq and Iran and Armenia, in here, and climbed Mount Ararat with my guide, and found Noah's Ark, and went to the what's called the Darupinar site, and stood on, of course, took pictures. This is all on the internet, and that was kind of hard to believe. Uh, but the, the reason I mention this story is not because I went to Noah's Ark. A lot of people have been to Noah's Ark before me. Marco Polo, all kind of, uh, the Archduke of Baghdad, all kinds of people have been there. The reason I mention it is what I learned about the Sunni Muslim culture in this part of the world. At the base of uh, Mount Ararat is a little town called Kazan, and there are uh, subsistence farmers there, herdsmen raising goat and sheep and cattle, and I had a chance to get to know these people. It's, it's rumored that the anchors to Noah's Ark are rest in the mountains near Kazan, which is out in this region. They were very poor people, but the village was very organized and orderly. The fences were well made. The homes were made out of cinder block with uh, thatch roofs. They had satellite TV, but dirt floors. Uh, the children had no toys, but yet they played in the sun. We played wheelbarrow races, uh, hide-and-go-seek tag, games like red light, green light, one, two, three. There were no child molesters, child predators, no drugs, no MTV. Men were men, women were women. When a child fell down and cut her knee, her mother or father would run out and hug her and made me think of what Depression-era America must have been like. And so um, it's important to keep in mind, especially in the events of 9-11, that not all Muslims are the crazy Shiite, I hate America, let me blow somebody up variety. Um, I think I told Don and Pat this earlier today. I would ask the people in this region at the base of Noah's Ark, uh, how do you feel about people who don't believe in Noah's Ark uh, through my guide? And they would say, what are you talking about? Everybody believes in Noah's Ark. And I would say, where's Noah's Ark? And the whole village would just point, build a big bonfire tonight, where's Noah's Ark? They just point. It took me about an hour to impress upon them that there was indeed a falling away of biblical belief in Christendom among the Crusaders. And in Europe and America, Canada, the Anglophile nations. And my guide and interpreter uh, communicated and articulated this to the Muslims. And then they talked amongst themselves in a little village powwow for about an hour. And then they came back and my guide said, well, people who don't believe in Noah's Ark, they, they just must be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> kind of interesting, at least to me. That was one of my uh, best adventures. Okay. Can we go back to um, Korea? I'd like to talk about Korea. No, Korea's north, north of here. Maybe the Japan map. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. <laughs> No salesman will visit. Call now. We care about you. Okay, where is Korea? A lot of you have seen the television show MASH, I presume. Most of what I learned about Korea came from that TV show. Uh, there's a swear word people say. This word is gook. We call Asian people gooks. Why do we call them that? Well, when our soldiers went to Korea during the Korean War in 1950, little children, they were very, very cute, ran up to our soldiers and said, me gook, me gook, me gook. And they, our soldiers thought they were saying, me gook, I'm a gook. <laughs> me means beautiful, gook means country. They were saying, beautiful country, you are from America, the beautiful country. There's food in Korea, mandu gook. 
uh, mandu, country mandu, guk mul, country water, which is kind of like a chicken broth. So uh, that was one thing I learned. Also the word soul. It's not soul, it's Seoul. Seoul meaning capital, ul meaning place. Uh, South Korea is a very key strategic ally for America. We have military bases here in Okinawa, Okinawa about 30,000 troops in Seoul, maybe some tactical nuclear weapons, at least one special forces group is based here. When North Korea invaded in 1950, in day one they pushed through Seoul, day two, day two through Taejeon, and down to Pusan, which is at the base of the peninsula. Down here is a little island called Jeju-do. Japan occupied Korea from, I believe, 1908 or 1909 until 1945. Uh, women were raped and forced into sexual servitude. Women who did not go along were brought to the town square and beheaded and their bodies cut up into little two-inch pieces, just for emphasis. Almost every tree in Korea was cut down to help build uh, the Burma Railway or ship back to Japan. The hatred, even today, and mind you, I was a, a university professor in Korea for 27 months and a TV actor. So I, and I learned to speak Korean fairly well, got to know the people very well. I can tell you I've never seen such hatred in my life as the Koreans hold for the Japanese. Now, this is something I've even had uh, Senator McCain and I have gone head to head on national radio about. He, he doesn't seem to understand this. Do South Koreans hate North Koreans? No. Many families are separated. They want to reunite. They feel that the Soviet Union and America kept them apart at the end of the Korean War when the Japanese left. When Korea played Japan in soccer in 1997, a World Cup, and defeated Japan, there was a celebration in Seoul that I could scarcely believe. It was as if they had dropped an atomic bomb on Japan. It was their revenge. South Koreans want to reunite with North Koreans and attack Japan, pay them back for the atrocities they inflicted on Korea, you know about the Nanking Massacre, Thailand, uh, the bridge over the River Kwai. Uh, through political correctness, we often talk about the internment of Japanese in this country, in Arizona, and that was a horrible thing. But it's just funny that we never really hear about the brutality that the Japanese inflicted on Korea and Asia. And to this day, the Diet in Japan refuses to acknowledge that these atrocities happen, apologize, or offer compensation. Can you imagine a united Korea with 1.1 million North Korean troops, 650,000 South Korean troops and reservists, North Korean nuclear weapons, 14 kinds of biological weapons. Most of them are over here in Xinjiang. Uh, there's only a 50 mile gap between the DMZ, between Seoul and North Korea. Why is there such a small DMZ? When uh, MacArthur campaigned, was it 52? He promised a quick end to the war. We pushed the, actually we had, MacArthur landed it in Incheon, he pushed the Chinese and the North Koreans all the way back into China, they pushed us back to Seoul, we pushed them across the border, and we said, hey, let's have an armistice, and that's where we are today, with a million North Korean troops right on the border. North Korea has a famine, they're starving their people so they can continue to build their missile program, their weapons program. They have a anti-globalist worldview, it's called Juche the Korean word for self-reliance. They do not want to participate in the global system much in the way uh, the apartheid folks in South Africa wanted to go at it alone, and you just simply don't do that. Whether you're Cuba, Libya, North Korea, apartheid South Africa, if you don't want to play ball in the global economy, you're finished. So 
one more thing I want to say about Korea is the abortion holocaust going on in South Korea. Korean men want sons. They're very proud of their race, not in an evil way like the Ku Klux Klan or Nazism, but as part of their culture, they want to be venerated seven generations back, seven generations forward. So they want their sons. During amniocentesis, if the woman is found to have a girl, uh, she must be aborted. Abortion is illegal in Seoul. Now, mind you, in, in, in Korea, South Korea, of the 20 largest Christian congregations in the world, 10 of them are in Seoul. So they have a very strong Christian foundation. There are a lot of Catholic missionaries there, Protestant missionaries. They ought to know better. But now in, in kindergartens in Seoul, it's about 65 to 70% boys, 30% girls because of the abortion holocaust. And in the future, there's another thing I told Senator McCain when I, I went on the Jim Bohannon national radio show. I think he was subbing for Larry King. So a lot of people heard this message. It was a real bone of content, contention I had with the host and the audience. They simply could not accept that for Koreans to save their culture and race, South Korean boys will have to marry North Korean girls. So there will be unification in the peninsula. But of course, America is afraid of what, as I said, the two million, almost two million strong soldiers and nuclear and biological weapons that a Korea, United Korea would have, and would they attack Japan? They hate the Japanese. Okay, let's move over to Burma again, back to Southeast Asia. Oh, go back to the Thailand. There we go. When I talk about the war party, I had mentioned earlier how the transnational elite of the Northern Hemisphere uh, is only interested these days in the diamonds, gold, drugs, water, oil, uranium, titanium in the third world countries. One of the biggest cash cows out there is Burma. This is called, you know what this area, what is this called? The Golden Triangle. Most of the heroin, well, a lot of people tell you it comes from Afghanistan and the KGB has been bringing it to the, Europe through Afghanistan, but a lot of heroin comes from this region. The United Nations says 13% of the global economy is based on drugs. That money flows through Chase Manhattan Bank. It flows through the stock market. It is everywhere and is also unaccounted for. It is easily laundered. This is why I believe drugs are not legalized in this country. It's a big cash cow. Now, Myanmar, used to be called Burma. Uh, Myanmar describes the name of all the tribes of Burma. The name Burma comes from one tribe, Bama, like Bama, University of Alabama. So Myanmar is some all-inclusive tribal name, which is why they changed it. Uh, when it was called Burma, it was a British colony. Okay, the British colonized India, Pakistan, Nepal, and this region. Before the outbreak of World War II, Burma was the third leading exporter of oil in all of Asia. Imagine that. Timber, rice, jade, incredible natural resources. It was a very rich country by Asian standards. Since the British pulled out at the end of World War II, guess what? The universities have collapsed. They haven't had a graduate in, I can't tell you how many years, over a decade, a single graduate. Law schools, medical schools, arts, humanities, uh, the timber industry, jade, rice, it's all been hijacked and shanghaied by the Chinese. And the drug trade, the economy's collapsed because it's not based on all their natural resources. It's mainly based on drugs. 
Uh, the Burmese people used to all have a large gold nugget around their neck that they would keep kind of like their 401k. <laughs> no more. These poor people are really feeling the, the heat from the Burmese junta and communist China. For all intents and purposes, Burma is a colony like Tibet. It's probably soon to be Nepal of communist China. Um, what makes me very sad is this didn't have to be. The United Nations has offered the Burmese junta a $1 billion cash payment to give up control of the country to a United Nations-led force until local elections could be held. Aung San Suu Kyi, who's a candidate for the Nobel Prize, would ascend from prison to uh, the presidency, as Nelson Mandela did in South Africa in this kind of a nation-building exercise. The Burmese junta said, no thank you, we're making a lot more than a billion dollars every year, so why don't you just keep your billion dollars and get out? You can imagine the amount of drug money that must be flowing if the Burmese junta turned down immunity in a $1 billion balloon payment. So just that, let that stick in your stomach for a while. Um, where do I want to go now? We can go anywhere. Um, so many countries. How about we go down to uh, Kosovo and Serbia, back to Europe. Uh, Kosovo, Serbia, Europe, Eastern Europe. There we go. We'll, uh, I think the natives are getting a little restless. Why don't we let this be our last country and then we'll break for a question and answer. Um, geez, this isn't my area. They're all basically poor white trash here. <laughs> I saw one episode of South Park and and Kenny had to go to be a singer in Eastern Europe, and his mother said, we love it here, they're all poor white trash, just like us. But you're not supposed to be watching stuff. <laughs> anyway, um, where's Kosovo and Serbia? Must be in here somewhere. Where's the Balkans? Yugoslavia? Oh, there is no more Yugoslavia. Duh. Okay. Last August, uh, one of my crazier adventures, I went to Belize, where I lived and trained with the British Army in their jungle training. Uh, they used to do the jungle training in uh, Borneo and Brunei, but when they lost Hong Kong, they pulled out, so now they train in Belize, which is a former colony. The reason I mention this is that my, the unit I was with, the RGBW, the Royal Gloucestershire Berkshire Wiltshire Regiment, which goes back to 1694 and fought against Napoleon in 1801 at the Battle of Alexandria, they were deployed in Yugoslavia. They were sent to help the Kosovo Liberation Army big drug smuggling outfit, against the terrible Serbs, who had no doubt uh, been heavy-handed in their occupation of this region. Uh, their mission was to protect the Kosovo Muslims against the terrible Serbs. However, the soldiers, the British soldiers that were on the ground there informed me that once they got to Kosovo, the situation had completely changed. The Kosovo Muslims, in addition to running their heroin, had set up a secret police, were dragging Serbian women and children out of their homes and brutalizing them, and they had to, on their own, change their mission to protect the Serbians from the Kosovo Muslims. And it makes you wonder how, in light of the 9-11 attack, that NATO was in there siding with the Islamics. I'm no fan of the Serbian communists and fascists, but it just points to the, the drug money, probably. Also in Afghanistan, drugs play a major role in the global economy. Um, 
I think we should stop here. I see a lot of yawns and stretches. You've had a very long day. So why don't we stop here and I'll take questions. <clears throat> yes, sir. No, I stayed in southeast Turkey. Um, see, you could see Batman over here. Name of the town, Batman. I stayed down in the area of Noah's Ark, so I didn't make it up there. Sorry. Um, Ma'am, sorry. Could you wait one second? Patrick wants to. Just wanted to emphasize. Here you go. No, that's going to be that. The question we want to Anthony has given a lot of information in, in very, very rapid fashion, and doubtless you'll have some very uh, important questions to you. We would ask, however, that you keep those questions on point to his presentation. We know that there are some other ancillary issues about which you perhaps may want to ask questions about the involvement of international this and that, but please keep them pertinent to the presentation. No one knows for sure. No, Turkey. Turkey is a part of NATO and wants to join the European Union. If they would uh, enforce, uh, liberalize gay rights and the death penalty, abolish the death penalty, they could probably join the European Union. So, I did. I had to pay off the local military commander in Turkey, <laughs> sir. Yeah, that's possible, but I, I don't know if that's going to happen. Like, for example, there's a nation in the South Pacific called Nehru. You've never heard of it, but it belongs to the United Nations, and it has about 11,000 citizens. Taiwan, on the other hand, is one of the top economies in the world, and they don't belong to the United Nations. Why do I mention Nehru? Because that's where the Russians launder all their billions in drug money. So if a tiny drug laundering nation like Nehru could belong to the United Nations, you know that something's amiss on the drug trade. But that's a, an excellent point that you raised. Sir? I haven't heard you mention the possibility of a surprise attack by China against Taiwan. What do you have on that? It's not only possible, it's probable. The West has basically abdicated uh, moral constraints upon China through our trade policy, their ascension to the World Trade Organization, when the president of China came to New York, he was allowed to ring the bell to open the stock market with the Republican Governor Pataki standing next to him. When the same President Zemin went to the United Kingdom, Tony Blair sent the police out to crack heads on the British citizens who were peacefully protesting him, which should make any normal person sick to their stomach. Uh, they certainly have the military capability to attack Taiwan, and I can't say for sure what will happen, but I know they want Taiwan back. And we'll probably make an attempt at getting it back. Sir? Do you think it's by chance possible that Slobodan Milosevic being tried out with the war tribunal in The Hague and the Netherlands is because, in fact, he will not ascribe to the new world order of transnational elites? And number two, why have not the Serbs, after being bombed into the Stone Age by our Air Force, not retaliated in a terrorist fashion in this land? Okay, to answer your first question, Milosevic like the North Korean dictator, like the Burmese junta, doesn't want to play ball. The Serbs identify culturally with the Russians. If you study the history of Serbia, there was a, a leader called Lazar, who I believe in the 17th century was almost able to drive the Turks out of uh, the Balkans. He was betrayed, I think, by his brother or his cousin. 
the Ottoman Empire spread into the Balkans region, and as a tax, the, the sultan in Turkey took the finest son of each Serb family and brought him back to be his personal bodyguard. They were called the Janissaries. It's one of another story I did, which you can find on the internet. So it's interesting that for almost 300 years, that the sultan and the head of the Muslim empire was guarded by white Christians who were trained in archery, horsemanship, weightlifting, and became his personal bodyguards. A little known story. Uh, I want to relate something to you, sir, that was told to me by the British forces that I trained with in Belize who had been in this region. Uh, you may recall that the Pristina air, air, airfield, the Russians parachuted in, and World War III almost was touched off because the Russians wanted the Pristina airfield. There was a reason for this. I talked to the uh, British, he's a major, I think, who was there. Uh, Wesley Clark, the American general, wanted to prevent the Russians from taking the airport. The British General Jackson said, I'm not starting World War III over this blank airport. And there was a reason for that, because the Serbs identified culturally with the Russians, the, the Serb people, they felt let down when NATO bombed them, as you said, back into the Stone Age, and uh, the Russians needed to save face. The British realized that the Russians did not have the kit, what they call kit, fuel, ammo, supplies, to hold on to the airport. So they decided to let the Russians' elite forces parachute in, take the airport, and within three days, the Russians had quietly asked the British for kit, for food, for fuel. And wisely, the British prevented uh, Wesley Clark and America from really going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Russians over this. One more point I want to raise about this whole episode. Uh, we know that the stealth bomber flew X amount of missions during Desert Storm and was untouchable. Yet our stealth bomber was shot down over Serbia. I believe that this was uh, done by Russian special forces who may or may not have been assisted by the Chinese in decoding our technology. I believe personally from my contacts in the military and British intelligence that that stealth bomber had its avionics stripped and those av avionics were sent to the Chinese embassy in Serbia and that is why we bombed the Chinese embassy. And we were saying we didn't know where it was located. Come on, China was Serbia's top ally along with Russia. You go to war with a country and you don't know like where the enemy's embassies are. An embassy and embassy pouches are supposed to be sacred ground and off limits. That's why I believe that the embassy was bombed. I can see no other rational explanation for it. Sir. Two questions. What, what's been really going on in Afghanistan? How successful have these bombings been? And what do you see as a follow-up? And the other question is, how do you describe the relationship between the uh, radical, uh, the Shiite Muslim sect, Russia and China. Uh, the reason I ask that, it seems a little bit confusing where Bin Laden, in one hand, is fighting the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Now he's fighting the United States, and there has historically been links between a lot of the Islamic countries and the Soviet Union prior to the, the breakup. How does that whole thing fall out? Is, is, is the Bin Laden network being financed and supported by China and Russia? And if they are, what's President Bush going to do that? Okay, this is how I would answer your first question about our military mission in the Afghani theater. The first troops on the ground were not American Special Forces. They were British SAS, a four-man team called BRIC. They went in to set up uh, communication links with uh, British intelligence M16 near the Thames River in London, and they engaged in a brief firefight. 
I wonder why our vaunted special forces were not the first on the ground to fight our war, why we sent in the British first. I think I have part of the reason uh, during the Clinton administration, money for training even amongst the elite forces was greatly reduced. We spent too much time focusing on the sodomization and feminization of the military. Uh, the British forces will tell you they don't care about someone's uh, race, gender, sexual orientation. You just better do your job and do it well. And if you're professional, you'll get along. Uh, fine, we've, we've lost that edge in our military. I had a chance to interview a SEAL team trainer in Korea who told me that they did not have money for demolitions, for parachuting, for target practice, and, and sent, they were sent to like guard the rainforest in Brazil. He left the forces, and remind, this is not only a Navy SEAL, a Special Forces operator, he's a trainer. He left the forces to become uh, a stockbroker and he was very demoralized by what had happened to the elite units. So the fact that the British send in the SAS before our own units, you should question that. As far as the effectiveness of our mission there, um, this is a country that's been bombed to kingdom come by the Russians. They've used biological and chemical weapons. The British, the Alexander the Great, the Russians, they all tried to take this country, and they couldn't. We know that. I guess we'll try to smoke out the terrorists and seal the borders, but uh, I don't know if that border can be sealed. For every Afghan we kill, every Shiite Muslim we kill, we'll probably raise up a thousand Osama bin Ladens. Um, it's a real conundrum here. Moving on to your next question, his relationship with Russia and China. Personally, I believe uh, that Russia and China use cults and Isla radical Islamic movements to attack and hurt the West. I could give you an example, Aum Shinrikyo, you know, the Japanese cult, the sarin nerve gas attack in Japan. Aum Shinrikyo's men, very sophisticated doctors and scientists, received training in Russia in this decade from a unit, I believe it's called Alpha 88. And uh, we should wonder why a horrendous cult like Aum Shinrikyo would be getting training from the Russian Special Forces. If you know your history, you know Russia and Japan are uh, avowed enemies. They're still technically at war over the Kuril Islands in northern Japan, and Russia would like nothing better than to hurt Japan's economy. Um, Western China is very heavily Islamicized or Muslim here, and uh, China is now busy executing Islamic rabble-rousers in the Western China. It had been the hope of the CIA that West China would break up as the Soviet Union did into you know, 20 pieces, but I don't know if that's possible. So that's something to keep an eye on, what happens in Western China. Um, the Chinese and the Russians, Cuba, South Africa, Angola, Mozambique, Laos, Cambodia, North Korea, all these Marxist countries and the radical Islamic countries, they have no shortage of glee. They're shedding no tears over the 9-11 attacks. This is one of the most important parts of our changing paradigm. We were told the world is one big shopping mall. America has no enemies. Everyone just wants good jobs. Your religion doesn't matter. Culture doesn't matter. Uh, people's racial heritage doesn't matter, but 9-11 has brought us back to reality. 5,000 years of human history show us that these things do matter, and we've seen that again in 9-11. Another question, ma'am. Um, unfortunately, we as a country did not heed 
George Washington's words to stay out of foreign entanglement. Mm. And um, for you know, years we sided with various people when they had their little wars going on and what was our enemy during war now is the friend and the other guy is the enemy and this and that. And of course now we're seeing that um, poem where we supported Bin Laden and his ilk of the Taliban kick out the Russians. Mm -hmm. Now of course they're our enemy and they fill up. Do you see this as possibly the start or do you think the U.S. government will ever learn that, you know, first of all, it's unconstitutional that we'll be sending money to all these people, these, you know, foreign aid and stuff. And second of all, getting involved in all these things without a declaration of war by Congress. Do you think we'll ever get back to, you know, governing uh, under the Constitution in this respect? And has this 9-11 opened any eyes to that, do you think? The Constitution is in danger, in my opinion. To get back to the kind of country and foreign policy that you are advocating would require a total re-education process in public school, the likes of which this country has never seen. Courses in morals, ethics, history, geography, religion would have to be undertaken so people might come to understand the worldview that you're advocating. But it is a very important point that you're raising. We have armed enemies who have turned against us. I would suggest uh, you look at the history of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency at the embassy in Cairo in 1957, given a list of communists inside Iraq to torture and take out. He said, I'd very much like to do that. Saddam Hussein had a very brutal childhood. He was gang raped by a group of homosexuals when he was nine or 10 years old. His father brutalized him. His mother was a prostitute. He was not allowed to go to school and learn. As a result, he could not get into the Iraqi military academy, which embittered him and turned him into the uh, torturer. This isn't a despot who delegates torture. He likes to inflict torture. Recently, he published a novel called Zabiba and the King, which is the best-selling novel in Iraq. It's going to be made into a 20-part miniseries. Zabiba and the King is the story of Saddam Hussein's life. It's about a king who is gang raped by a band of homosexuals and wants to give up his throne to marry a prostitute. In my opinion, the king is the function of the man who never rescued Saddam Hussein's mother from her plight. That's another article that I did on the internet, Zabiba and the King, and, and the whole history of Saddam Hussein and his involvement with the CIA is there for your reading. Does someone have another question? <coughs> Based on the complexity of the 9-11 attacks, we realize that a significant organization is behind it. And my personal thinking on that is that they realized that there would be retaliation. Maybe they thought it would be ineffective. But I'm wondering if this could be the definitive step that is designed to destabilize and destroy the Constitution, totally change the, the face of our nation by a series of events which do not all come from Arabs or Middle East probably involve China or Russia. Is that the impression you have? Is that the type of scenario you see us beginning to enter now? And if so, what would you hypothesize to be the most likely sequence of events? I would answer your question this way. 
who won and who lost in the 9-11 attacks. Let's talk about who won. The interfaith movement won. Those who oppose fundamentalist Christianity won because Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson have recanted their stance and have really laid prostrate in an embarrassing way before the liberal media elite and said they won't speak up about NAMBLO or abortion anymore. I think myself and Charlie Daniels are like the only two public figures, which is really sad, who have stood by the Judgment Day theory and saying America better shape up and examine its foreign policy. Who else won? Those who would want in this country uh, limiting our movement, those who have advocated uh, an internal passport system, which we've seen in, uh, in the Soviet Union. And, and when I lived in South Africa under apartheid, they also had an internal passport, which was not used in really a vicious way, but was a means of control over, over the people. So who won and who lost? Those uh, who would want America to help have a greater role in helping Israel fight her wars. Those are another winner. So there's several groups there who have won. Those who want to limit our freedom within this country, uh, have a closer relationship with Israel in fighting her wars. Those who would want to wipe out Islam, which does not fit in the New World Order as a monotheistic religion. Um, the interfaith movement. So all everything points to a loss of freedom. Personally, I believe this country needs to examine its foreign policy, our embargo in Iraq, which has indirectly led to the killing of the death of half a million children under the age of five. They certainly count. Uh, our wag the dog bombings to distract attention from Clinton's sexual indiscretions, where we just lob missiles into an aspirin factory in Sudan or in some Afghani camp because Bill Clinton wanted to have you know, sex with a little girl while he was eating a pizza in his office on Easter Sunday, which should make any normal person sick to their stomach. I mean, Ronald Reagan wouldn't even go into the Oval Office without his tie all the way up and his jacket on. So in, in a roundabout way, unless this country addresses, and this is in my opinion, I'll say it this way, and I've come under attack for this view by the Wall Street Journal New Republic insanely have attacked me for the for this stance. God did not fly the plane into the building. God doesn't work that way. But when we have a nation that advocates the murder of babies even at nine months, we have Christopher Reeve who played Superman, truth, justice, in the American way, sitting before Congress advocating abortion at nine months for tissue, for fetal tissue research and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, more like, not Superman, Nietzsche's Uberman. When we want to turn over the Boy Scouts to the Sodomites and the North American Man-Boy Love Association, when we have movies like The Craft, teaching children how to slit their wrists the right way and how to worship Satan, when we tolerate all this wickedness, when we bomb a maternity hospital in Serbia, when we invite the blood-stained president of China to open the stock market bell, when we buy our Christmas toys from China made by Catholic priests and Christians in slave labor camps, even if there is no God, which we all know there is God, it would create such a negative karma that all of these evils would have to come back to us in some way. And that's what Charlie Daniels and I have tried to awaken Americans to that possibility. And so, unless this nation repents, I believe that we'll see more of the same. 
I hope that, that I'm wrong. But the fact that President Bush Jr. told Falwell and Pat Robertson to change their stance about the need for repentance of these great evils should frighten not only evangelical Christians, but concerned Catholics. It's almost like it's become a thought crime to question our foreign policy, abortion at nine months, NAMBLA, on and on, ad nauseum. Does anyone else have a question? I guess we should wrap it up, Patrick.